Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. If you have a copy of his word, open to the 58th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time today. Uh, I am so excited as we essentially begin to kick off the fall season here. As Pastor David has already shared, there was a flurry of activity both on and off campus yesterday. Women, you do not want to miss that opening session tonight with Jen Wilkin. Men, you do not want to miss tomorrow night. And please don't forget to bring those canned goods because somebody's going to bring more than somebody else, which means somebody's going to get a really nice surprise. Uh, And no matter who wins, everybody wins because the Oxford houses are going to get well supplied with the non-perishables that they need in order to continue ministering to those who are in recovery. And I find it interesting that even as we're beginning to raise money and items for for those kinds of ministries still as, as fall kicks off, that we would begin a series this morning on justice in the middle of a church-wide fast, which launched on September the 1st with Pastor David. It's kind of interesting again because it's the fall season. All churches know it's the fall season. It's, you know, summer's done and people are coming back from their vacations. And so churches all over America really are getting together and they're like, how do we make sure we get our people back? from the beach and from the mountains and what should we do and maybe we should give some ice cream away or have a big meal or give away some iPads and what is Pastor Joel doing? We're not going to eat for a month (laughs) and we're going to start a series on social justice because we are very seeker sensitive around here. Let me tell you why I think both that fast and this series are are really important at this time in the life of our church. For, for, For one thing, The term justice is a complex word. That fact is demonstrated by the various ways that we define it. A lot of folks, even when they see, we've been running the graphics for several weeks now, and you look at them and you go, I don't even really know what that's about. It's because all of us have some preconceived notions about what justice is and isn't. And generally, and I think maybe you might find your view of justice illustrated up here. Some people see it as, well, I mean, when I was a kid, that top left, that's where I always went. Superman. I, he was so privileged. I'm a Batman guy. You know why? He didn't have any superpowers and he made it on his own. Amen? So some people look at that and that's what they think. Some people think of a court of law. Some people think of a, a police officer. Tombstone, one of my favorite movies, the tagline for that one, justice is coming, right? How many of you are like me and you, you, you've got the lines down for tombstones? I'm your huckleberry. Yeah. Uh, love that one. Blue Bloods uh, gets watched a lot around my house. A lot of moral dilemmas and and a lot of different things uh, about life really can get unpacked between a father and his children uh, when you're watching a show like that. Some of you immediately think of something like that. But here's the thing that makes me sad. There's no picture of the church up there because generally speaking, when we think of justice, the church isn't what we think about. It's just not. In fact, it's sad even more that we tend to think about a television program before we think about the church. Can we just be honest? Danny Reagan's not a real cop. Does that surprise you? He's just not. Donnie Wahlberg could never be a real cop. He was once in a boy band. How could somebody like that ever be a real cop? And so you've got these fictional stories that kind of take precedence over and above even the church. And so when the Bible uses this term justice, it doesn't negate any of these things that you're probably thinking of, but it gives us a more robust understanding of what justice is. There's an expectation furthermore, of God's people collectively, not just the secular courts and the civil authorities, but the people of God to be people of justice. And the Hebrew word is mishpat. Sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? It means at root to give someone else what they are due. That's what it means. In a negative sense, it it would reflect very well on movies like Tombstone and TV series like Blue Bloods, like give evil people what they're doing. You got to punish them. You got to put them in prison. Sometimes you need to execute them. There's different things that uh, that that might mean. But moreover, when the word mishpat is used in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, excuse me, got my languages mixed up there. When it's used in the Old Testament, 
it more often than not refers to that more positive side, which is to advocate and provide for those who are vulnerable and who do not have a voice. And there is not a society that has ever existed, including the United States of America, which is a phenomenal country. But ladies and gentlemen, this ain't heaven. This ain't a utopia. And we ain't all got it figured out. And there's still systemic injustice. And when there is and wherever it is and whatever form it takes, God's people are called to stand in the prophetic tradition and to speak into that situation and to bring with their words physical manifestations of the very justice of God. And without that, the police are hopeless, the civil courts are hopeless. And so this is something that we must do. We we need to spend some time getting this right. Let me give you three reasons why I think it's important that we do it at this time. It's like, okay, why this subject? Why now? Again, it's fall. Couldn't you do something fun, like seven ways to have a better sex life? You know, that would fill more seats. Pastor, why are we doing this now? Let me give you three reasons why I think it's absolutely essential that we do it now. Number one is that we're we're at a turning point in the life of our church body where it is time for us to remind ourselves of why we do so many of the things that we do. We're going to find that we do justice as people of justice in many different ways. Doesn't mean we've arrived. We've still got a long way to go, but we're doing some things. Why do we house the homeless through our cold weather shelter in January? Why is it that I'm going to ask some of the leaders of that ministry to be out there in the foyer in coming weeks and to give you information about that ministry and how you can be involved in it? Why did we give away 25,000 pounds of food yesterday? Why do we have ministries like Celebrate Recovery? Why are we partnering with Muslims and Jews uh, in in some broad-based way to try to address opioid addiction and death in the area? Why do we do that? And the reason that why is important is because even when we may work with people that we disagree with, we share the common interest, but as followers of Jesus, we have a very distinct reason for why we should do what we do. And that, that gets unpacked from Scripture. Here's a second reason. Unless you've been living under a rock, or just in case you've been living under a rock, next year is an election year. Have you noticed? Well, it just suddenly got tense in here. I don't know why. Yeah, actually, I do know why. It's because the Covenant family is incredibly diverse, and a lot of our votes are going to cancel each other out. I just that, That's just how it works, right? And so in 2020, you're going to hear this word a lot. Progressives are going to translate it for you very distinctively. They're going to tell you that it means adopting certain policy positions or voting certain ways. And if you don't do that, you must necessarily be an unjust person or not care about the vulnerable. Conservatives, bless their hearts, they're they're not even going to define it. They're just going to react to the liberals. They're going to tell you not to have anything to do with it. Don't even talk about it, especially not in the church. They're going to tell you that when you hear the word justice, that's code for something else. And you should run. It's important at this point in our culture and in the life of our church for us to to deal with this head on. You know why? Because our understanding of justice and how justice should be meted out and emanate from God's people doesn't come primarily from political or philosophical origins. Our reasons and rationale are theological. They come from God. And we need to know what he has to say. I can guarantee you two things, all right? Because we got a number of different folks in this, in this crowd right now that's in front of me as well as those that'll be in here at the 11 o'clock is there are going to be times in this series that you're going to be uncomfortable. It's just going to happen. If you're, if you lean conservative, you're going to, oh, that sounds kind of liberal. If you lean liberal, you're going to, boy, that sounds really conservative. Here's the suggestion I'm going to make to you. Take all of that stuff. I'm not even telling you you're wrong. What I am telling you is those ideologies, God doesn't pick a side. God has his own ideology and we need to check our own at the door. Otherwise, whatever we take into the throne room with us, it's going to get burned up. So let's look at what God has to say on this subject of justice. Here's the third reason I want to do it. It's because we have a lot of young people who are part of our church family, and they're in the middle of all of this mess, and they don't know how to define it or to understand it. They've got the news media telling them one thing. Perhaps their parents telling them something else. The school system's telling them something else. Some of you just went, you're you're not even a month in college yet, and you're up in front of these new professors, and they're telling you all of this stuff. And the answer that you're looking for comes from God. It comes from God. And I want our young people to know what justice is, what it looks like, 
so that we can have the right kinds of conversations around this place to know how to execute justice in the name of Jesus. This is how any evangelical Christian whose name made it into the history books made it into the history books. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great uh, theologian and pastor in Germany who called out the German church for its sinful capitulation to Nazi Germany, he puts it this way. Now, we're going to have to make a little correction to, to Dr. Bonhoeffer here, and it's in this first section we want to quote him rightly, uh, and then we want to use God's word to make a correction here. He says, Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest. Well, that's actually not true. Christianity, according to Paul, stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus. Okay? So it doesn't start with some political, it starts with the fact that Jesus is alive. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, because Jesus is alive, that means he is who he says he was. That means we pretty much need to roll with whatever else he says. That therefore means that Christianity, based on the death and resurrection of Christ, should be examined in light of the following things. And Bonhoeffer got this, and it's why he was able to make the kind of dent that he was able to make in human history. It's revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, and pride of power, and with its plea for the weak. If you know anything about Bonhoeffer's life, you know that's exactly what he embodied this. Christians are doing too little to make these points clear. Christendom adjusts itself far too easily to the worship of power. I want you to let that sink in for just a little bit. We adjust ourselves far too easily to the worship of power. You just think about how much angst there is, how many points your blood pressure goes up every time your guy doesn't get elected. Have I proved my point? We are far too adjusting, easily worshiping power. Christians should give more offense, shock the world far more than they are doing now. Young people, that's the attitude this pastor wants to see instilled in you because your Gen X older siblings and parents and your boomer parents and grandparents and your builder grandparents and great grandparents, we've really struggled to get this right and, and we've probably gotten it wrong more than we've gotten it right and we need you to take us into the future. And so we're going to begin this morning with Isaiah 58. Now there's some, some debate here about the precise context that the prophet's addressing. Some scholars say that Isaiah, who's obviously speaking from the 8th century B.C., is dealing with a and addressing a 6th century B.C. audience. Two people 200 years in the future haven't been born yet. Their grandparents haven't been born yet. But they're saying that's the exact, um, that's the exact target group that he's looking at. Other scholars would say, nope, 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 this is too late in the prophecy for that. He's actually talking to someone even in the future with reference to us, perhaps even that so-called terminal generation before the return of Christ. But the subject matter is abundantly clear, even if the target group is not. And you see that with a wide unanimity among the scholarships. And so, in fact, the, the group that I will call the big three, probably the most, the most well-known, well-respected Isaiah scholars. And I'm talking about the late Edward Young from Westminster Seminary, Walter Brueggemann, retired professor at Columbia Seminary, and the late J. Alec Motyer, the British theologian from the University of Bristol, all say with one voice that in this passage, Isaiah is confronting the sin of injustice among God's own people. That they are giving attention to things that are not bad, but it is causing them to pull their attention away from other things. So again, the problem is clear, even if the time period is not which suggests to us that regardless of the time period, the problem is still a problem, isn't it? And that this has been a constant struggle for God's people because these people, on the surface, they're not even bad people. Notice how Isaiah the prophet, he's condemning them at the same time he says this about them in verse 2. Yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and, and did not forsake the judgment of their God. These are good people. They come to the temple, they, they give their tithes, they give their temple tax, they, they, they're good citizens generally, they don't bother anybody, they're quiet, they're compliant. So, so why, why the declaration of judgment? Why is that coming? He says, well, it's because they've managed to, to disconnect their faith from this level of engagement that I expect when it comes to the vulnerable of society. If you're more progressive, it, it kind of looks like this, this secular sacred divide, like church and state and all these other kinds of things. And my, my faith 
should not influence what I do. Well, you can know more if you're a genuine follower of Jesus, completely remove your faith from your daily life, any more than you could pull your own spine out of the back of your neck and continue to live. You just can't do that. More conservative-leaning people say, well, they spiritualize. So liberals dichotomize. More conservative people tend to spiritualize this. It's like, well, we, we just need to, we'll see this more as well as we look at the, uh, the rest of what Scripture tells us about this concept of justice. It's like, well, that's not really our purview. Leave that to the police. Leave that to the civil courts. The people of God really shouldn't be speaking to that. We ought to just concentrate on the spiritual things. And if that's you, you need to know that's exactly what these people were doing. That's exactly what they were doing. And it's a universal reminder to God's people through the ages that you cannot have genuine faith unless that faith is vindicated by the presence of justice, both among God's people and outside of God's people to the extent that we're able to influence the world. And and that's because justice defines and and demonstrates four characteristics that, that reveal genuine faith. We're going to see that in Isaiah 58. Let's look at them. First of all, justice both defines and demonstrates true worship. And so let's go back and look at the first four verses. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? This is the people speaking back to God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? That's kind of imminent right now because some of you are hungry because you're joining us in the fast. And if anything, you want God to pay attention to that, don't you? This is a group of people who are doing the very things that we're doing right now. And they notice that God doesn't notice. And they want to know why. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. Oh, there you go. That's why. And oppress all of your workers. There's another reason why. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. That's scary. What does he mean? Well, again, the prophet issues a wake-up call, and God's people say, what? What? We... We're doing everything we thought we were supposed to do. But what they find satisfying, God finds nauseating. And the reason is made plain. It's because you do this for your own pleasure. That should scare anybody who comes into church or who looks for a church. And the main question on their mind is, am I getting what I need? Am I being fed? And I, 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 I. The Lord says here, that's not true worship. And everybody can tell that it's true worship because they can see the fruit of it. They see that the end of this is not advocating for the vulnerable as God does, but the end result, in fact, is fighting and fussing and arguing with each other and, and, and calling people names who are in the, the most vulnerable in our society. That's not true worship. The result is to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. That's a metaphor for what later in this prophecy is going to be made plain. You are oppressing your workers. It's good that you take off the Sabbath. You should do that. That is what the law says. And in this environment, pre-Jesus, when the law is still in effect, this is absolutely what you should do. But why do you make your workers work on Saturday? Why are they out there in the fields? Why do they not have the same privileges that you have? Why are they oppressed? This is what I'm looking at. And this is the irony. To, To fast... And many of us who are participating in that this month, the covenant will recognize that because we felt the hunger pangs or, you know, maybe if it's social media, you, you, you know, you're getting itchy with your thumbs because you're not using your phone as much or whatever it is. I mean, to fast by definition is to do without willingly. In other words, I willingly withdraw from food to, to show my dependence on the Lord and to hear from him. And God says, I I see, he's saying to the people in Isaiah 58, I see inside your heart, you do this to get benefit from me. You don't do this to know me. And there's a difference. And the motivation in your heart is made apparent by the fact that you are willing to do without so that I might bless you, but you are not willing to do without for the sake of your workers who never get a day off. There's some hypocrisy here. 
And the Lord goes right to the elephant in the room, especially your more vulnerable neighbor. Let's look at Proverbs 19. Look at Proverbs 19, 17 says this, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Does that first phrase sound familiar to you at all? Perhaps like something that Jesus said, Lord, when did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you in prison and visit you? What does he say? When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. You did it to me. If our worship of God is genuine, the fruit of it is justice, particularly for the vulnerable. Now, I'm not saying, nor is Scripture saying, the way you get to heaven is by doing good works for other people. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But I will remind you, brothers and sisters, of what Calvin said about this, that faith alone does save, but the kind of faith that saves is never alone. It does not leave you exactly the way you were. It transforms you and makes you precisely the kind of person that will not go after power, but will instead, even if necessary, speak against power on behalf of those who have no voice. This is what God calls us to here. And it's a universal reminder to God's people. Universal. That if your faith is genuine... It will produce justice. It, justice both defines and demonstrates what true worship is. Secondly, justice both defines and demonstrates what love of neighbor is. The prophet Mook goes on, and he says the following, Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? All the, the physical manifestations of what a fasting person would do? that to actually, believe it or not, call attention to themselves. It's the very thing Jesus speaks against in Matthew 6. When you, when you pray, go into you, don't do this to be heard by other people. When you fast, don't come in yelling and griping about how hungry you are. Wash your face, all right? Don't, don't, don't have a pity party for yourself. Don't make this about you, because it's not. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not, is, is not this the fast that I cho choose? This is the fast I want, he says, to loose the bonds of wickedness. The kind of fast that leads to these things. Loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? This is what I'm looking for. Genuine love for me cannot help but spill over into love of neighbor. All right, now some of you are thinking, well, I love my neighbor, and you think about your next door neighbor who's just like you, who thinks like you, who, you know, you share sugar with them. Yeah, that's not where God is going with this. And we're going to get into that later in this series. The neighbor is specifically defined, as we will see when we get into one particular sermon in October with a very well-known parable, as those half-breed people that you have hated for four centuries that now you find yourself at their mercy and they're showing you mercy. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. And so you got to keep in mind, these people saw fasting as a means to an end. I'm going to give something so that I can get something. That, that's, that'd been an attitude that, that they had been fighting within themselves for so long. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 5, there's this man named Naaman, and in that story, he has leprosy, and he hears of Elisha, and so he goes to the king who's ruling at the time that Elisha is prophesying, and he says, Here, here's the deal. I've got 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold. Command your prophet to hear me. Now, we look at that some 3,000 years after the fact, and we go, oh, that just sounds horrible. But really, in that time frame, in the ancient world, that was sort of the accepted mentality is, is the way I'm going to get what I need is I'm going to, I'm going to get rich and I'm going to get money. I'm going to get power and I'm going to shift it around. I'm going to give it away. I'm going to scratch somebody else's back so that they scratch mine's. And, and in second Kings five, we read that the King, one of the righteous ones, one of the few righteous ones in that time period, he just rends his garment as a sign of both blasphemy and repentance. And, and the, the end result is he's basically saying to Naaman, this is not how our God works. Salvation isn't for sale. 
Healing is not for sale. Benefits of the kingdom are not available primarily merely because someone has power. God does not work from the top down. God works from the bottom up. He always has. He always has. And you see this here. He says, if you want me to approve of your fasting, let the fruit of your justice, let, let the fruit of it be justice for the vulnerable among you. And we're going to see that throughout this series. The heart of God has a special concern for the vulnerable. He defines the vulnerable. You see some of that here. The oppressed, the hungry, the homeless, the naked. Isaiah says, you pay no attention to them. There's a theologian at Yale named Nicholas Walterstorff, and he describes what he calls the, the quartet of the vulnerable. These are the four groups that in the Hebrew prophets show up, and they show up together as a group more times than any other. And the reason they do is because in that time period, these were the most vulnerable people. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. These are the people. Now, just, now, they're not the only classes of the vulnerable, but Walter Sir says the prophets will gather them in those groups of four as an example of these most obvious cases of vulnerable people because they find themselves without a voice, they find themselves without resources, and they find themselves under a yoke of oppression. Okay, A widow, that's still true today for a lot of widows. We have a great social safety net that I'm thankful for, but even with that, Sometimes widows can fall through the cracks. You could probably throw into that widow category now the single mom who's trying to raise her kids and simultaneously she's got to put them somewhere while she's earning the money to raise them and then she's got to figure all this out. What in the world am I going to do? And she's scared out of her mind and there's any multiplicity of reasons that she got to that point. But she is nonetheless at that point and both she and her children are created in the image of God and objects of the redemption of Jesus and it is a responsibility of the church. To say, how can we serve you? The orphan. We, our family is complete because of adoption. But adoption, every adoption story begins with loss. Begins with trauma. And if you don't think any of these things are related, all this opioid mess that we're fighting right now, the, the statistics have tied that. I mean, I mean, so clear is the correlation as only someone who is willfully ignorant could miss it between addiction and early childhood trauma. What are we doing for the orphan? What are we doing to strengthen families so that there are less orphans? Immigrant. That's not controversial at all, is it? We're going to disagree about immigration policy. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is this. When you go to Weiss, when you go to Walmart, when you're working in the yard and somebody walks up and offers to do your yard for money, when you're, whatever, wherever you're at and you see that individual whose skin color is different than yours and their primary language is different than yours and it's obvious to you that they're, they're a bit out of place, kind of like you or I would be if we were in, say, Southeast Asia, do we see the person before we see what society is saying about the person? And then the poor. These are the people who, and I'm not just talking about people who can't take a nice vacation. All right? These are people whose lack of financial and other resources sometimes is the difference between sickness and health. Sometimes it is the difference between life and death. Sometimes it's the difference between parole or prison. And it's all dependent on what they can afford. What do the people of God do? What are we called to do on behalf of these people? Think about those words and all these things. When you read these words again, God says to his people, you want to fast? Try willingly doing without for the sake of your neighbor. That's the fasting I want. That's what I want. I want you to pour yourself out because genuine justice is not just demonstrative of genuine worship. It is demonstrative of love of neighbor. Number three, justice is demonstrative of true justification. Now here's, this one's going to sting a little bit. Let's continue. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. This is the reward if you'll actually fast the way I'm telling you to fast. If you'll actually care for the people that are first in my heart as the king of the universe, the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer, and you will cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst... 
the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. In other words, you can even go to the inner city and you will find every need met. If you will just do this the way I'm telling you to do it. Make your bones strong and your, you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach. Covenant church will be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to dwell in. In a place where one out of 1,200 people in a neighboring county will die, not become addicted, but die from an overdose. The people of God who gain the vision of God that he has laid out in his word will become known as the restorer of those streets. That's what he's calling every church family to do. But I don't pastor other church families. I pastor you so you get stuck with me. This is true justification. It doesn't produce salvation, again. But genuinely redeemed people walking with God God said, this is, this is what they're like. You know, you think you, look at the promises here. You just do what I tell you to do because I tell you to do it. It's like you think you can turn my blessings on and off like a spigot. Like you can come into my temple dedicated to my name and get what you want by playing around with some of the artifacts in there like you're trying to jiggle a handle on a toilet. And that's not how it works. You come to my temple for me. You focus on me. You fall on your face before me. You let your love and your absolute blown away adoration for me spill over into a love for other people. And you make that tangible. And then this will be the result. And it won't be because you were looking for it. It will be because you simply seek the glory of God. But two things are required in order to get that done. The first is action. Pour yourself out. I don't, I don't know about you, I, I, and I'll, I'll admit, I don't know everything that that means, but it simply must mean more than throwing a quarter at somebody who's sitting on the street. It simply must mean more than occasionally thinking of someone. Pour yourself out. What, what would happen here? If the people of God collectively, not just the leadership, and we got our own ways to go in this situation, but would, what would make first in our heart those who are first in God's heart, and that we would invite the lame and the blind and the poor and the single mom and the immigrant and all these other people, the orphan, and that we would bring these, that they, they would be the people who have the seats of honor. It's another parable we'll get to later in this series. But that's what it means. You pour yourself out for these people. But you can't do that unless you've got something else, and that's attitude. There's something you've got to start doing, that is to pour yourself out for the poor. But you can't do that unless you stop doing something else, the prophet says. Stop pointing the finger and stop speaking wickedness. Stop it. One of the issues that we have a hard time addressing in the midst of the opioid crisis, is what I've called the narrative of the addict. For three decades, our nation built a narrative around these people. And it was well-intentioned. We were trying to convince people not to take drugs. That, that's, that's a noble thing to do. But what happened in the midst is that anyone who is addicted gets painted. They get tainted. They get stereotyped. Those people are inherently bad people, as in worse than me. Those people, likely, they're probably just criminals too. They're certainly the scum of the earth. They don't deserve anything. I, and you, I'm aiming this at addicts right now. I imagine you could probably think of some other groups of people in our culture who people use that kind of invective to describe them, undesirable. Really? Someone created in the image of God. Someone for whom Jesus bled. And you're going to talk about that, about them like that in the presence of their creator and redeemer? Okay. 
Good luck rolling the dice with that one. Problem is, it's just not true. As is the multiplicity of narratives that all of us know, because it's not a family thing. It's got to get to us. It's like a. It's like a problem has to get to a certain level before we realize, oh, that's really not all that true. Well, how do you know that? Well, because well, now it's my son. Now it's my daughter. Now it's my brother. Now it's my sister. Now it's my. And I know them, and I know their story, and it doesn't match this three-decade-long narrative that our country's been building around. Them. We know this. And here's the issue. That's true of everybody else as well. But the narrative makes it difficult. And this, according both to the prophet and Jesus, by the way, you go to Matthew 25, and we'll get there eventually. That's that parable. I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. Well, how are you going to tell them apart, Lord? When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. Or you didn't. That's how I'm going to tell them apart. That's the acid test. You don't do that to be redeemed. But if you are redeemed, this is the acid test, according to Jesus and the prophets, to tell if you are redeemed. Which means, for some of you, this may not be nearly so much about the orphan and the widow and the immigrant and the poor as it is about your soul. How do you treat the vulnerable? Are they people who seek to do justice? Who do you know that because they're in some category, God would say to you, people are going to speak evil to them, and you need to stop it. And you need to pour yourself out for the very people that other people are speaking evil about. Let me say something real quick. If you're a guest with us today, uh, number one, you're welcome to listen in, but this is, this is for the family, okay? And, and number two, it's going to sound strange because a lot of churches like to hide their stuff. Every church has got stuff. We're just going to be honest about it because we are people of grace here. There is an extraordinary amount of darkness right now. And I mean, not, I'm not talking about conflict or people turning on each other, being mad. I'm just telling you as a pastor, I am aware. And if you're sitting there right now and you're part of that, one of those stories, and you're like, oh my gosh, everybody's going to know. No, they're not going to know because trust me, brother, sister, there is so much darkness right now in people's lives and things that they are fighting right now in this body. They'll never guess it's you. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of it. And I can't tell you because confidentiality is the confines pastorally in which we can best deal with some of these things but here's the issue is that some of you may become aware of part of this story about this person or that story about that person or how this happened or how that happened and with partial information you will be tempted by your enemy to form fully informed opinions with partial information do you believe i love you because i do i do I got one thing to say to you. Shut up. Because you don't know. I mean, you have no clue. And in the midst of all that gossip and griping and pointing of the finger and speaking of wickedness, you make your pastor's jobs a hundred times harder when you just need to be quiet and maybe take all that gossiping energy and pour yourself out for somebody who's less fortunate than you. Pour yourself out. For the vulnerable. Because justice demonstrates that you have truly been justified. Here's the final thing. Justice is, a, is demonstrative of, of true delight. You want to be happy. You want to rejoice regardless of your circumstances. Look at what the prophet says finally here. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. This is important because this is where we get to the issue of motivation, the why. See, for followers of Jesus, it's different. We don't do what we do by obligation, even by divine obligation. We do it because as people who have been given not their due, but far more than what we deserve, we want that to spill over into society at large. And so for these words to transform us, we're going to need to wrench ourselves free from some faulty assumptions. 
that we have adopted sometimes that come from wider culture. So let me speak to a couple of different groups because like I said, we're, we're a diverse bunch here. So if you're, if you're more progressive, all right, so let's say next, next November, that's your goal. I'm going to that booth and the current incumbent, I want him out, all right? That's what I want, whatever, all right? We don't care who you voted for around here, do we? All right, we're going to have some different opinions, that's fine. But if that's you, here, here's what I want to say to you. Because in, in the progressive mind, if there's a social issue, the answer is almost inevitably a system answer. There's something systemic. And, and you're not always wrong. Many times the, is, the answer is that there's a defunct system, a dysfunctional system, a non-existent system. It's, it, the, the issue is always seeing the system as the thing that solves it. There was a woman named Beatrice Webb. She was actually the primary architect of the British welfare system in the early 20th century. And in the early part of trying to build that system, she wrote the following in her diary. I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. See, she knew that at the heart of the system she was building was a presumption, and that presumption was that all of us as human beings are basically good. We're basically kind. We're basically generous people. We want to give things away to people that are less fortunate than us, and the only thing that's missing is the system. Toward the end of her life, she would write the following. I now realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man. How little you can count on changing them by any change in the social machinery. No amount of knowledge of science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulse. Now, she never changed her political position. She, she felt like that system was the best way to do it. She continued to advocate for it. But she did come to this conclusion. She said, you know, the root problem here is not systemic. The problem is the human heart. Because true human nature, contrary to what I thought in the early days of building the system, humans are not naturally altruistic. I said it a few weeks ago. This world is a dumpster fire inside a prison riot. Because that's who we are. That's progressive naivete. Now, if you're angry with me and you're more progressive, just hang on because... I will tell you this, progressive naivete, as I see it, the naiveness of the progressive vision is never more proven than when you look at what's happening in some conservative circles today. I don't know anybody anything. Right, if I'm giving some, something to somebody, that's charity. That's my choice. I built this myself. I'm my own master, my own captain. I earned all of this, and they need to earn all of theirs. And they. You still believe I love you? There is no way in holy Hades you can make that kind of attitude square with the Word of God. You can't do it. Because one of the things that we're going to continue to see in the prophets here is God's view of all that stuff you have. See, American individualism says, this is mine, everything from the clothes on my back to the truck I drove in this parking lot on to the house that I got mortgaged, but I'm paying it down, and in just a few short years, and I'm about 148, it'll be all mine. Right? That's American individualism. And I'm going to sit on the back deck and I'm going to sit there and go, I, you know what? I've had some lucky breaks, but basically I earned this. The Lord Jesus takes that mentality and he just flips it upside down. And he's going to look back at you if that's your attitude and say, you know what? Yeah, you did. You did make some wise choices with that brain I gave you. You did work hard with that health that I allowed you to have. You, you did pretty good, given the fact that I chose who your parents would be and what century you would be born in and what privileges you would have in this society over other people. Yeah, you, you did work hard, but I basically gave you all this. See, that, that's the conclusion we have to come to if we're going to be people of justice. This, this is who I am. I'm wholly dependent on the Lord. When we, when we fall into either of those assumptions, Almost without thinking, you know what happens? Social media. We start shaming each other, right? You don't believe in my solution, therefore you're racist, or you're unjust, or you're this, or you're that. Or, or well, you don't even understand. Those people aren't even worthy of anything. They're worth and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. Anybody know what Godwin's law is? 
Godwin's Law. I don't even remember the guy's first name, but his last name was Godwin. And he said there is now a mathematical algorithm that proves you can only have so many comments on a social media thread before somebody calls somebody else Hitler. (laughs) That's the level of our dialogue now. It's just going to get worse from now to next November. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, I love you, but as your pastor, I'm going to tell you, thus says the Lord, God's people are capable of, and God expects more out of us than that. If we're going to be seen over the next year, year and a half, it will not be in our guy or our gal getting elected to this office or occupying some mansion somewhere. It will be in us rising above, even with some of the differences we have, and becoming people who have first in our hearts the same people that God has first in His. The poor. The vulnerable. These are the people. God says the key is to delight in me. Elaine Scarry wrote a book called On Beauty and Being Just. And she says this, she's built it on, on the philosophical foundation of Plato, the theological foundation of Augustine. You will only be just if you get a vision of beauty that decenters the self. That stops telling you that life is all about you. Okay? I, the first time I ever fasted, I was in college. And... Uh, a good friend of mine was fasting. He'd been fasting for about 40 days. I mean, I'm talking nothing but water. And he was just, you could just see he was walking with the Lord. He had the, just had Jesus all over him and the face of God. And, and I, I wanted that. And so I decided I would fast. Not necessarily to seek the Lord and his will for me and my life, but because I wanted that. I wanted to be the guy that everybody would look at and go, you just see the face of Jesus. I, Moses couldn't top what you look at when you look at Joel. It was about me. It's about me. And I wanted to hear God speak. He was telling me, he's like, I could, Joel, it's amazing. I can hear the voice of God. And I was a Baptist. I didn't think that was possible. So, so I said, I said, I want that. That's why on about day four, the only thing I could hear God say was get something to eat. It's it's because I mean, what was my rationale? There was no delight in God in what I was trying to do. None. I was driven by self-interest. Not a genuine desire to know more of my Creator and to share His heart, specifically as regards Isaiah 58, His heart for those who are first in His heart. We're going to see this. All this is summed up in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 58 isn't just a prophecy. It is a voice that matches other prophets, which collectively match the voice and heart and priorities of Jesus. All this gets tied together. And there is, it's absolutely unavoidable what God expects out of us tangibly when it comes to being people of justice. And it's summed up in Jesus, not just because of his voice, but because of his actions. Have you ever thought about the life of Jesus? He literally identified with the poor and vulnerable. The first people to hear about his birth were people that nobody else wanted to be around, let alone touch or have a relationship with. Shepherds. They're the first people to hear. They are. He identified with the poor and the vulnerable. He was born in a barn, literally. We use that to insult our children when they leave their socks on the floor. Jesus was literally born in a barn. His upbringing was in a min- as a minority, living in the political space of the Romans who both occupied and oppressed his people. His trial by every legal scholar that's ever looked at it was the epitome of injustice. He had no voice. He borrowed throughout his life things like a donkey to ride on and a, a room to pray in and even a tomb to be buried in. And it was in, in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus identified first with the lowest, with the poorest, with the most vulnerable, with the most afraid, and with the most oppressed. So here's the million-dollar question. Do we? That's what the next eight weeks are about. That is what the next eight weeks are about. When we grasp the gospel in its fullest, we will inevitably become people of justice. And just in case there is someone like that here today, 
And I have no doubt there probably is. There's a single mom out there somewhere. There's an immigrant. We're we, especially now that the semester's begun, we have international students that come and join or they watch online. If they're poor here that have a hard time making it, maybe you were able to be a beneficiary of some of that food. Let me, if, you're, if you're in one of those classes, I hope you have heard today and I hope you hear over the next seven weeks God's immeasurable heart for you. I know the church has not always done this well. Because we, like the ancient Israelites, are tempted to look in other directions. We're tempted to tap into power and into money and into all these other things. But the God who created you and who sent Jesus to bleed for your sins has never changed in regard to his love for you. Will you come to him today? Will you give him everything you've got? Just like a widow in scripture, all she had was a mite, but she gave him everything. And she was first, over and above all those religious leaders with theology degrees, Jesus said, that's the one right there. That's the one. He loves you. Come to him. And church, let's be the kind of people that when we say that, by virtue of our actions, these people will know it. This, according to the word of the Lord, is their due. Let's pray together. Father, these next eight weeks are going to be challenging, I know, because... They've been, they've been challenging for me as I've looked at these texts and I've examined the, the contents and the motivations of my own heart. And Father, we don't, may we do this and may we do it because we delight in you and because we will pour our heart out over those who are first in your heart. And I pray, Father, that you would make us the kind of people that are known to be the repairer of roads, that are known to be the kind of people who are central to what's necessary to put society back together when it has fallen apart as a result of human sin. Teach us over these next eight weeks what that looks like and may we embrace it with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.